Um, we are going to pause Ephesians for four weeks. We're going to prepare for the arrival of our Messiah, Jesus, also known as Advent, Christmas. Um, we want to slow down our, our, our Ephesians series. We, we, we're halfway through the book, so we'll pick it up in January. But we're going to start kind of a four-week series preparing us for Christmas. Um, so with that said, uh, grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's some around the room. We're going to Luke chapter 2. And... Um, this morning, we're going to kind of talk about what Christmas is about and what we're preparing for and the history behind uh, one gospel writer's announcement. But before that, let me just pray for us <clears throat> and just help us center and prepare for what God has for us. Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you are here with us, that you are for us, that you um, became a human and that you are like us and that you are God with us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with your presence more, that we would um, slow down, that we would sink into who we are and who you are with us. And we ask for your spirit to reveal gently the things in our lives um, that need to be reoriented around you. Pray, Holy Spirit, that your grace would fill this room, that where we've built religion, that where we've built demands on ourselves that you have not placed on us. We pray for freedom. I pray for my brothers and sisters that are hurting today. As we think of Christmas, they're simply reminders of broken families, the reminders of the lost loved ones, the reminders of pain. And we pray for your spirit to gently fill those places of pain now. I pray, Lord, that there would be not one person here walking alone in life, that this would be a family that journeys together, and that uh, we move beyond this gathering to intimacy. So we pray this in your name. Amen. As I was praying, I just felt right now I need to share this. Um, family does life together. And if you are here and you have no family, or if you are looking to journey of a, with a church, let me, let me just free you from some expectations that you might have. At this church, you can't just sit and attend because that's not what it means to be church. If you're coming for the first time and you're checking us out, that's great. But the invitation is to journey in life with other people. That does not happen just here on Sundays. That happens on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It happens every day of the week and it happens by your initiation. I know there are some people here that feel like you're on the outside. Let me just say this. The only way you can get on the inside, whatever that inside is, is by initiation. It's by joining a group, by putting your needs out there. I can't tell you how difficult it is to hear people saying, I just don't feel like I belong, when they've never joined a community group, when they've never showed up to, to a serve event, when they don't come early and set up. You want to find an easy way to get plugged in, join a community group, set up on Sunday mornings, um, be a part of the life of our community. I guarantee your needs will be met by giving, not by asking to receive. Amen? Okay, that's, that's a freebie. <laughs> Okay, so Christmas, here we are. Uh, Christmas comes, I'm going to read, I've written some stuff, um, so I'm going to read from, from some notes today. Christmas time comes, and as much as we get excited about the holidays, it becomes one of the most stressful seasons. Uh, malls get crowded, uh, freeways get backed up, Christmas lights come out, and between decking the halls, cutting the cookies, picking up the perfect presents, and keeping up with the Kringles, Christmas is not full of comfort and joy. 
It's full of anxiety and stress and busyness and family dysfunction and wish lists and stuff. And we are tired, we are exhausted, we are consumed, we are focused on ourselves, and we go in debt to celebrate a Messiah who was born poor in a barn and laid in a feeding trough. Every year, America, or the United States, excuse me, buys, uh, spends over $450 billion on this holiday. $450 billion on stuff like this and this. Now, this is just an empty box, but you can just imagine something precious and great, maybe size 25 shoe in here from Nike. Yeah, you know, Shaq shoe right there. Um, I don't know why, that, that just was the first thing that came to my head, Shaq shoe. Um, we, we are inundated with over 2,000 advertisements every single day, images that are designed to make us feel more and more discontent with what we already have and who we already are. The question this morning is, how do you celebrate Christmas? How do you celebrate Christmas? What are the family practices that you've inherited? What are the, the traditions that you enjoy during this holiday? Now, there is nothing wrong with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, with claymation videos being watched, with setting up and buying Christmas trees, or buying presents for your loved ones, or decorating the outside of your house in Christmas lights, or whatever you want to do. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if these are the only traditions and practices that we're celebrating and intentionally doing on, on in the season of Christmas, I think the advertisers, the malls, and the big brands win. And our society and culture is telling the Christmas story better than we are. So this morning, I simply, um, and let me do this real quick. Um, so for those of you that know me, I will apologize for saying things that are difficult. So if you hear me apologize, just call me out. Say, stop apologizing. This morning, I feel like I have a word for us um, that might feel heavy, is a good way to describe it, or even um, pointing the fingers, but I just need to say off the bat, I'm, I'm with you in this, I'm speaking to myself, and the question I have for us is how do we challenge the Caesars of Christmas and challenge the way we celebrate Christmas in our 21st century society? Christmas is primarily an announcement that the arrival of the king of the universe has been born in a manger. Christmas was an announcement that there's a new king in charge, that he is God, and all the other gods of the universe, the gods of our world, the gods of our society, the Caesars of our day are not in charge. Christmas is about declaring your allegiance to the one true God who is the incarnate son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus was born in human history. He was born in a manger as a poor Jewish child in Bethlehem, four miles outside of Jerusalem. And his birth sets the course to change human history. And for the next four weeks, we're looking at the stories of Christmas to challenge the Caesars of our day and the Caesars of our own lives so that we can simply focus in on who God really is and make Christmas about Christ. Are you with me? So that's what we're doing the next four weeks. So um, 
Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Luke chapter, you guys are already there. I already announced that. Cool. Uh, you guys don't have your Bibles. What's the deal? <laughs> oh, we got a phone. That's fair. Okay, phone. Cool. What happens if it, uh, your, your phone doesn't have charge? Do you get to read the Bible or did you memorize? Just kidding. I have it on my phone. I've got a, a multimedia device here. I'm not giving you a hard time for that. Okay, so Luke chapter 2. See, the thing is, people, you used to hear in church like... When I say turn to Luke chapter 2, now you just see this bright fluorescent light and people are just doing this. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, anyways, that's, that's a side note. Luke chapter 2, let's read this together. Uh, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Okay, pause right there. You guys thought I was going to go much further. Not yet. Um, Luke chapter 2 begins with this whole backdrop of Roman history. And if you're reading that one verse in the first century written by Luke, uh, a doctor, a, a physician, a writer, who's writing to tell a theological narrative of what happened with Jesus and the history of the church, he also wrote Acts. If you're reading this and you lived in the Roman Empire in the first century, this has dramatic implications for what's gonna follow in the story. So let me, maybe, what are you guys, what, Darren, what are you talking about? I thought the Bible just, you know, we can understand it. Yes, you can understand it. Yes, you can pick it out, and God inspired this. It's authoritative, and he speaks to you. But what we do here on Sundays, for those of you that are, are new, is we do something called exegesis and hermeneutics, which means our job as teachers is to go and, and research the, the content and context of which the scripture was written. This was written 2,000 years ago by a specific person to a specific pr group of people for a specific reason in a specific context with a whole bunch of assumptions being written in it, okay? Our job is to find out what it meant then and translate it for us so what it, what it meant then is what it means today. Are you with me? Whew, that was... That was, that was a really quick version of hermeneutics and exegesis. So that's what we're doing. And so sometimes I get excited when I get to do this. I just get to pull out the history books and say, let me paint a picture of what it means for us to hear the Christmas story from Caesar Augustus' backdrop. So seven minutes of Roman history. Are you with me? Some of you are falling asleep already. That's okay. Pay attention because this is so important. This is not just for the Gospel of Luke or Acts or the New This is the entire New Testament. We, ha we have this filter of this Roman Empire and the implications of what Caesar had. So 60 years before Jesus' birth, General Pompey conquered Palestine and ruled over Israel. Now he put in a puppet king and that king's name was Herod. Does that sound familiar? Okay, um, Julius Caesar was the first emperor and his son Octavian, uh, who took on the name Caesar Augustus, uh, in 31 BC, after the death of his father Julius, set out to kill everyone that participated in the murder of his father. 
You've, you've read about Julius Caesar. Do I need to go into the history of that? You can just watch the Shakespeare play if you'd like. But there's Julius Caesar, and then his son in 31 BC goes out to kill and defeat anyone that was participating in the scandal and the, the conspiracy against Julius Caesar. So Octavian, a.k.a. Caesar Augustus, we'll get to his name in a second, um, goes after it. There's a civil war that breaks out, and when this war is breaking out, and as Octavian slash Caesar Augustus is conquering all these people, um, he puts these games together, these Colosseum gangs where animals are, are defeating gladiators and all those things. We've seen the movies, but he puts these games on, and it's for the entire world to participate in. And during this long season of games, a comet appears in the sky. This is fact. And, and what they do is they say that is Julius Caesar taking his rightful place as God. So Julius Caesar was announced a God. He was deified. And Caesar Augustus Octavian takes the name Son of the Deified One, or as they began to call him in the Roman Empire before Jesus is even born, he was known as the son of God. That's one thing that's going on. That happened early on. Then the war ends, the civil war ends, and um, Caesar Augustus is announced emperor. He's announced Caesar, and he takes on the name Augustus, which means illustrious one. It means the majestic one. And he is given a title that is above all other Roman titles. He's given the name high priest. They begin to worship Caesar Augustus as the son of God, that he was the bringer of peace because war was breaking out all over the Roman Empire and the world, and Caesar Augustus established a new era, a golden age, a new um, uh, 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 empire, and they called his empire salvation. The Son of God, the, d the divine Son of God, the illustrious, majestic one, brings peace, known as the Pax Romana, and he, he brings salvation to the world. This is, this is the propaganda that was being literally spread all over the Roman Empire, all the way from England to India. 50,000 portraits of Julius Caesar, or Caesar Augustus, excuse me, were, were literally advertisements, you could say, for who the deified one was. All throughout the Roman Empire, you would see, um, uh, you would see statues, and, and you would see um, descriptions of the Son of God. They, were, they called him the Savior of the world. And the way he brought peace is by destroying and exploiting everyone that got in his way. So when, when they would conquer a land, if there was ever a revolt, they would just absolutely devastate and desolate that place. Where Jesus grew up, this is interesting, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, okay? So it's about a four-day walk um, to uh, Bethlehem or Jerusalem, and it, you're talking hills, so he lived about a four days walk away, because that's where the work was. Remember, we'll talk about that in a second, but Joseph had to go where there, there was work. We'll, we'll bring, come back to that. So where there was a revolt around the time Jesus was born, he probably was three years old, by a bunch of Jewish um, zealots, and they were revolting against Rome, against uh, Caesar Augustus, and they crushed the, the, the revolt so harshly that they crucified 2,000 Jewish people in a row. They didn't have enough timber in, the, in Nazareth. They had to import enough wood to crucify that many people at the same time. That's the type of peace that Caesar brought to the world. You with me? Okay, let's keep going on this. I want to paint this picture. He was considered the, the incarnate God on earth. 
Caesar Augustus was considered God incarnate on earth. Um, that's, that was declared by the Senate. This is all in history books. Flavius Josephus, you can find all of this history. Um, that's accepted by all scholars across, um, uh, uh, across denominations, across, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It doesn't matter. Across the, the philosophy, I'm blanking. Anyways, uh, unimportant at this point. Temples were built in his honor. They prayed to him. They made sacrifices to Caesar. Um, and they built uh, temples all over the empire. And where there were temples, um, they called them ecclesias or ecclesias. What's ecclesia for a Christian? Church. It's the same word we use for the word church. It was used to regard the household of worship of Caesar before it was for the church. Okay, this has dramatic implications. Uh, A poet named Virgil writes this. um, Carved in stone on all the monuments or most monuments, uh, Virgil wrote this. Good news. We have an emperor. Justice, peace, security, and prosperity are ours forever. The Son of God has become king of the world. The word good news is the word gospel for us. It's the same word. When we talk about the good news of Jesus, it was the same word used 30 or 40 years before the birth of Jesus. Excuse me, 20 or 30 years before the birth of Jesus to refer to the good news that the Son of God is Caesar Augustus. There could have been a number of words used, but Luke does this intentionally. Um, there was a festival that announced that the descendants of, um, of Caesar Augustus would be divine. Uh, there are so many different things. Uh, one writer talks about the Romans as far as peace. He says, the Romans are plunders of the world. They rob, butcher, plunder, and call it empire. And where they make a desolation, they call it peace. Just to summarize, there was an autobiography called The Acts of Divine Caesar. He called himself the son of the divine one. He was the cosmic savior that inaugurated the golden age of peace. His birth was an atonement for the past sins of Rome. Okay, are you catching the parallel? Please say yes. Let me get some heads. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm by myself and that's okay. I can preach to myself. Um, I do it every Sunday morning before the church starts. Um, uh, he was the bringer of peace. They called Caesar is Lord. The word for Lord is Kyrios. Remember that. Caesar is Lord. The news about Caesar was euangelion, or the gospel, good news. The, his assemblies of worship were called ecclesia. Um, he established a universal empire and brought peace. And some, the, 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 the poet Virgil said, he brought a renewed humanity. All of this was written before Jesus even was born, was even born before the Gospels were written and recorded. Your allegiance to Caesar was not just a political or social one. It was a religious, religious and personal one. Taxes were like idol worship to the Jews. To be under a Roman authority and forced to pay tax, taxes, which was paying the armies that, that literally conquered over you, was like worshiping Caesar. They considered taxing the regions like Judea. Um, some estimate that 80% of a Jewish person's income 
or um, was, was going to Caesar, 80%. So when you pick up the story in Luke, this is our backdrop. The backdrop is that there is already good news. There is already a Lord. There is already a Savior of the world. There is already peace on earth. The peace was brought by a sword through domination, through, through killing, through murder, through um, exploitation, through oppression and domination. Are you with me? And we pick up in the story, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken over the entire Roman world. And verse three, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. Now, let me just explain this. That's at least a four-day journey on a donkey. Without roads, up these hills, rocky weather, who knows what it could have been like. Probably really hot. He was probably born in the spring, not during December. Sorry to burst your bubble. Um, and for, for people to travel four days, remember, if, if they don't work, they don't eat. Now, how hard is it to travel half, for, for, for half a day on a plane? Imagine walking your pregnant wife on a donkey when you're a teenager. Mary and Joseph were teenagers, in case you didn't know. They weren't that old. Talking young. Mary was probably 13 or 14, maybe, maybe even younger. Walking them four days on a donkey, that is just the symbol of oppression. That is just a symbol. He has to go from his, where he was working as a carpenter, which is, there's not a lot of wood in Israel, so most carpenters, what we think is they were stonemasons, so they were building stuff out of stone. There were lots of buildings built out of, out of these massive stones. We believe Jesus was more of a stonemason than a carpenter making wood. Anyways, I'm hopefully just blowing your bubble right now, just like, what are you doing to my Jesus? Don't pull on my Jesus of suburbia, white hair, blue-eyed, halo. No, he's Middle Eastern. Let's, let's, let's be real. He was Jewish. Some of your, yes, let's get real. <laughs> he had diapers, you know, whatever they looked like back 2,000 years ago. He cried, probably fell and bled and burst his knee open. Who knows what he did? Um, anyways, where was I going with that? Anyways, so imagine being forced, literally forced to go halfway for all the, you know, four days journey, one direction, to where you end up with your pregnancy. You've redeemed yourself, Jimmy. <laughs> there is grace for you, brother. Thank you, brother. Um, now I get less movement. That, that's really hindering for me. I talk with my hands. Um, so we, we pick up. So they're moving and says this. He, so he went there to register, verse 5, with Mary, who was pledged to, be uh, uh, pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes, cloths and placed him in the manger because there was no room available for them. That's part of our story real quick. We see 
the picture of poor, uh, young poor couple giving birth to a boy in a, in, a, in a barn next to a donkey and camels in a feeding trough because there was no room for them. And then it goes on, and it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Shepherds, real quick. Shepherds doing the night watch, were, they weren't the cleanest people. They weren't the most educated. They, weren't, they were more like the uh, second string, frost soft team. They weren't good enough or maybe strong enough or healthy enough to watch the sheep during the day. So they're on a hill, most likely overlooking Bethlehem, and shepherds were, were low, low class people in the first century. They weren't welcomed at the dinner table, most likely. They were dirty, they smelled, they lived with sheep. Um, these are not the kinds of people that get news like this. Are you with me? These would be the AM, PM employees at, at 2 o'clock in the morning in Barstow. <laughs> Again, there are some of you from Barstow. You know I love you, and you know who I'm talking to. So... So we have these AM, PM night shift employees, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Not to the priests in the temple, not to the rulers of the city, not to the people that you invite over for dinner because they have money to invite you back, not to the people that you send your Christmas cards to because they sent you Christmas cards last year, not to those types of people, but to the AM, PM employees, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But an angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you, you Angelion, good news. The same good news that's referred to Caesar. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior is born, has been born to you. He is the Messiah or other translations. He is the King, the Lord, Kyrios. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with, uh, with this angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest of heavens and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them they had, uh, they had, and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem because it's about four miles probably from where they were, and see this thing that, they had, uh, that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they had seen them, they spread word concerning what had been told them about this child, told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The story, the announcement of Christmas, is a subversive, intentional announcement using the same phrases and words that were defining Caesar. Caesar is Lord. He is Savior. He is the bringer of peace. He is, uh, he, he, his, his announcement is good news. And the gospel writers choose the same exact words, the same exact language to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is, is Savior. Jesus brings peace. 
Because when Christ is Lord, Caesar is not. When Christ is Savior, Caesar is not. When Christ brings peace, peace does not. Caesar brings peace through a sword, through domination. Christ brings peace through sacrifice, through the cross, and through love. When you use the same words, you now have to choose Caesar or Jesus. What will it be? One story has the king of the universe sitting on a throne in Rome. The other story has the king of the universe lying in a feeding trough to parents who are poor and can't even afford the temple um, full sacrifice for a newborn. They have to use, um, when they go to the temple, they use uh, pigeons and birds. That was the poor man's sacrifice for a newborn. How crazy is that? Jesus doesn't even get a lamb or a goat. He gets birds at the temple sacrifice because his parents couldn't afford it. That's the story of Christmas. The story that makes us choose which God we worship, Caesar or Christ. And unfortunately for the first century, they had to make a choice, unlike so many of us today. Unlike so many of us today, it's, isn't it fascinating to you, or maybe it's fascinating to me, that the way we celebrate the least likely people being told first about the king of the universe being born, we, we celebrate this poor savior being born to poor, uh, poor parents by going and spending $450 billion on stuff like this and this. I almost apologized. I'm not going to apologize. Let's go there for a second, shall we? This morning is about what kind of story are we telling? What kind of Christmas are we celebrating? The Christmas story is opposing the dominant gods of Jesus' time, forcing everyone to decide who is Lord, Caesar or Jesus. You have to choose. Christmas is about reorienting our lives around this beautiful Messiah that came into human history, not with sitting on thrones, but sitting in a manger. Not called the illustrious one, called Emmanuel, God with us. He comes not as some cosmic deity, he comes in human flesh. Do you realize how significant this is? So that he could be like us. So that when we're stressed and feeling like the world's against us, we can relate to a God who knew that the world was against him on the cross. Do you realize the story? It's so personal. It's so relational. It's so political. It's so spiritual and tangible. This morning, I just want to pose a couple of questions. Are you finding Christmas through the Michael Buble Christmas album? or through credit card debt, or through the anxious rushing about, the spending, the parties, the, the gentle nativity scenes found in a, seren a serene baby without a swollen face, and a Mary who doesn't look like she just gave birth, and Joseph who didn't just give birth to his son in a, feeding, in a barn with a feeding trough next to a camel and donkey. Is that the story you're living? Because the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the God of peace came to us as a baby. And how we celebrate this story has radical implications for the world. Because if we continue to live the way we live, then the advertisers, the, uh, the big brands, and the malls tell this story better than us. 
I would like to suggest that there are many, many Caesars today. That they didn't go away, they just changed their names. And it seems like most of us, especially in the Christian world, and I'll speak on our behalf, not as someone that's figured this out, but it seems like most of us are polytheists. We worship a bunch of gods. And the question today is, is it the Caesars of the world or is it Christ? Here's a couple of Caesars I'd like to name over the next four weeks. One of the Caesars or gods we worship is ourselves. It's all about our dreams, our needs, our worries, our lives, our way of doing things, our wants, our lusts, our gluttony, our addictions, our envy, our family. We're so self self-focused. We, we're, we're, we're extreme isolationists these days. We are the me and I generation. It's never, we, I mean, imagine what it would look like for us to be held accountable to a certain style of living in a community that says, does your bank account match your worshiping of Jesus as Lord? Does your rest reveal that Jesus is Lord. Do your hobbies, do the way you you spend time, the way you show up to the holiday party. Is it about you or is it about what Jesus is going to do through you there? I mean, it's it's really easy to to isolate the self. We we worship ourselves, our schedules, our I mean, so self, we can talk about that all day long. How do we how do we come against the idol worship of ourselves. I mean, does anyone else struggle with with having an issue that I am the most important person on this planet? I know you guys are important, but I really am the most important person on this planet. That is literally what I think. I don't have to cognitively think that in my head. Oh, I'm the most important person. By how I live, by the way I choose to live my life, that is obvious. Why? Because it's difficult when people ask things of me, especially when it's my day off and you want me to help you move. Some of you are gracious enough to want to do those things. I don't even want to want to do those things sometimes. How selfish is that? Busyness. Let's go after this one. Some of you thought you were going to get off. We worship the full calendar. We worship people that have no time for themselves, for the things, uh, for rest, we, have, we, we worship a culture of busyness. The next thing, the next party, the next meeting, the next, the next sale, the next whatever it is. We're so, we're, we're scheduling our lives in such a hurried pace that the, no wonder the world doesn't want to come to Jesus because he offers us peace and joy and we're anxious, stressed, and on Xanax. Nothing against that. And I'm, I'm not one to talk again. But, I mean, can we, really, can we really think about this for a second? What would it look like to worship God with our calendar? How many of us invite strangers into our home? How many of us have strangers that we know? They wouldn't be strangers if we knew them, huh? <laughs> exactly. That didn't work out like I planned. <laughs> this microphone is tripping me out. Um, I mean, see, like, what would it look like for us to take our schedule and just say, okay, God, 
Literally two days off. Sabbath once a week. I mean, Monday nights are for the spontaneous gathering of people in my home. I mean, what would it look like to, to, to worship Jesus as Lord, not busyness as Lord? Because when we, when we, let's really, you want to go even further? Because something inside of us feels so good about a full calendar. We feel good to be needed. It feels good to be wanted, that, that we have friends in our lives that want to hang out, even though that, that in some ways is keeping us from solitude. It's keeping us from God. It's keeping us from the things he wants us because we don't have space to listen. We don't have space to rest. We don't have space to enjoy a wandering walk through the park because we've got to get to the next thing. I don't know. That's just me. You think about it for a little bit. What does it mean for you to celebrate Christmas this season with challenging the God, the Caesar of busyness? The easy one we can go after, consumerism and materialism. Does anyone find it ironic that we celebrate the shepherds being the first announced, the poor child in the poor home with the poor teenage family being the savior of the world by spending $450 billion? I mean, something inside of us feels guilty when we don't buy the more expensive gift next year for that one person that we like the most. Does anyone else struggle with that? That's because advertisers are winning. And the church isn't saying, hold on, this is my story to tell. That's not how the story goes. The story isn't about more stuff. The story is about Jesus. And does he ever ask for more stuff? He's given everything away. Yeah, it's better to give than receive. As long as I give 10%, but I get to receive 90. <laughs> right? Again, this is me. If some of you think I'm speaking directly to you, I'm not. This is me speaking to my heart. You can just go further. Last, last year, Alex and I, uh, we chose not to do any gifts for any family members, and we asked all of our family members to not give us any gifts. I think I got one thing from a friend that I didn't tell. Um, and it's so silly. How many of you are here when I talked about the iPhone case last year? Okay, yeah, somebody got the iPhone case for me last year when I talked about it being a spiritual discipline not to get it. Anyways, it was an amazing gift. So, four of you were here last year. Um, so, we, we celebrated Christmas with Alex's family, and uh, we chose, hey, we need, to, we need to make, and this was our discipline, this isn't for you. We said, we're going to make this about what God's doing in our lives. So let's not spend any money. This wasn't to save money. This was to challenge how we celebrate Christmas. Here's what happened. I felt like I've been numbed my entire life to the meaning of Christmas. Christmas morning comes, and we had, I think, seven kids under the age of 15 um, there in this house, and a massive Christmas tree, and dozens and dozens of boxes of, of gifts. And the whole time, I knew none of them were for me, but I was just hoping for that one. You know what I'm saying? Um, for, oh, maybe they really did get me something. But the whole time... I sat there as kids opened their gifts, threw that gift over, went to the next empty box for that, that experience, uh, that high of whatever was in that next hidden box. And I sat there with so much joy that I was seeing it for the first time in a way that I've never seen it. My wife and I said that was our best Christmas. But here's the other reason. We chose to do Christmas differently. Before we had that experience, we said the first thing we're going to do is open up Alex's dad's diner. And we're gonna, we announced it on the radio. We did flyers all over the city. They live in Northern California. And we fed about 200 homeless 
individuals that came in on buses from the local shelters, and we provided Christmas breakfast, eggs. Every, it was the most amazing breakfast. But Alex's family all came to that, and that was their favorite Christmas because we said, why don't we do something good and announce this message in a different way? Rather than a private family experience around the tree, why don't we invite the entire community, those that would never be invited into a home in the first place, and give a meal and and spend time with them? The most amazing Christmas experience we've ever had. It's better to give than receive. Some of you need to challenge your family's tradition of gifts. Maybe it's just not going all the way. There's nothing inherently wrong. But let's just think about it. Isn't it okay to talk about this here? If we don't talk about it here, where are we going to talk about it? If we don't talk about our addiction to stuff in the place that God, which is really attached to our heart, if we don't start talking about our heart, where else are you going to talk about it? So we want to target materialism and, and consumerism as a church. I mean, a couple other things. Don't you find it fascinating that we go into debt for Christmas? Do you think that's a godly way to live in debt? You think that's handling your finances well? I'm speaking again on on behalf. No, it's not. God doesn't want us to be in debt. He wants us to live financially free. That means stewarding generously our resources, stewarding it well. It means living below our means so that we can give above and beyond our means. Do you know what I'm talking about? My wife and I, we've chosen to live this out. It's really hard. We've been saving for a car for three and a half years. And then guess what comes up? A building campaign. Guess what we have to give? It gets real personal, doesn't it, when you have to live this stuff out from the front? Because it is that car. We can just go on. But the choice to live debt-free is a whole other freedom. I think the most prophetic witness we can have in our day and age in Southern California is the prophetic witness of using our finances in a way of accountability. I know a group of people that whenever, this is a guy's group, whenever someone needs to buy something over $1,000, they have to bring it to that group. Because they have to discern whether or not that aligns up with them worshiping Jesus as God. Lastly, distractions. Um, so we have busyness, consumerism and materialism, the self. And I think for our young generation, uh, the social media boom has, dis- has fractured our souls. That is a harsh way of saying it. It's fractured our souls. We are unable to be present anywhere. We're driving in the car. We're checking our Twitter updates. You know, we're, we're standing in line. We're seeing how many likes we have on Instagram. We, we're waiting at the airport. We're not asking God, what are you doing here? Who, what stranger can I bless today? We're saying, what are all my friends doing in different places around the world? And we're presenting a false self to the world. And I'm on all that stuff. We're presenting the best picture with the best digitally edited photo in the best, most exotic place on earth. Just so all of you know, I was there and I'm better than you or whatever it is. Or that something inside of that post makes me feel better as long as I have 50 likes this time. Do you, am I preaching to the choir? Probably. And we need to learn how to walk present with ourselves, with God, with each other. I literally have conversations with people and what, what I see is the, the fluorescent glow on their face. <laughs> There's nothing bad with that in itself. 
but is it keeping you from the meaning of Christmas? Will it keep you this season? So that's what I want to challenge this morning. We're going to talk about this over the next three weeks. What does it mean for you to worship Jesus as Lord and challenge the Caesars of Christmas?